How is everybody doing? And welcome back for another Strength Chat episode. Today, I've not just got one special guest for you. I've got two very special guests for you. Today, I'm joined by two two coaches who have been involved in the fitness industry for a number of years and are now working together, taking the world by storm. Today, I am joined by Kyle Dobbs and Matt Domney. How are you both doing? Uh, we're, we're, thank you very good. much for yeah i told you we were going to talk over each other uh, but we're doing good i would like to clarify one thing i think we count as more of 1.5 of a strength coach because kyle's well respected and i'm in the process of being canceled by everybody so we're only one and a half people at this point right now we're probably also special for different reasons yes and we, we probably don't need to go into too much detail with that but but yeah everything we'll that's people's imagination because, yeah because we'll, we'll let the we'll let the viewer the, the listeners decide on on you know kind of what that actually means but uh, thanks for having us on. We really appreciate it. It's always an honor to be able to come on and, and, and talk about the stuff that we love. And it's always fun to come on and together, you know, cause usually we just yell at each other, like <laughs> on our own zoom calls and we yeah. can't, we don't have real conversations. Now you can yell at each other to the public. So yeah. <laughs> and you can kind of moderate us a little bit, maybe give us like scorecards at the end. Like that would probably be fun too, uh, but we'll, we'll do our best with it. No, uh, yeah, th- thanks a lot for taking the time to, to jump on. Um, yeah, really, really appreciate it. But especially with the last year or so being, you know, quite um, crazy for, for a lot of people, what have been happening in, in your worlds? What have, what have you been, what have you two been up to? I mean, the, the nice thing about what we were doing is we were fully remote before any of this stuff happened. So we were fully remote and we were running our mentorships and our continuing education programs all online and all through Zoom. And doing actually no in-person seminars and trying to figure out how we would schedule them before any of this stuff happened. So for us, it actually, I I hate to say it was a positive effect, but there was actually kind of a positive effect for us because all of the people, like all of our demographic of coaches that wanted to learn how to build businesses and do stuff online and work with remote clients and like educate themselves in general uh, went from having like telling us, oh, I just don't have the time to be able to do this to having an abundance of time. And having to immediately work on switching to more of a remote business and all of the people who had been putting off joining our program for like time constraints or just like lack of desire because like, I don't need to do anything online. Like I'm making a lot of money in person. I don't have to do anything like this immediately saw, Oh God, I, my, (laughs) my life is gone. I, my whole, my whole income is gone now. So I have to do some (laughs) stuff remotely. Uh, So it actually ended up being a good thing. And like, I think like, 2020 ended up being a pretty good breakout year for us in terms of establishing legitimacy in the field, just because we got to deal with, like, I think in our, our, our first year when I was working with Kyle in 2019, I think we saw a total of like a hundred coaches throughout the, the two quarters of the group mentorship that we worked with. And then last year, I think the number was close to 500. Wow. So like the, like, I think last year was a bit of a breakout year for us in terms of what yeah. we were able to accomplish with that, which is cool. Yeah. Oh, nice. Do you, do you find, cause obviously um, with the mentorship program that you're on, do you find that you, a lot of, um, especially with the last year or so, you know, obviously their numbers speak for themselves, but how did that um, sort of uh, take up your time in terms of the clients that you might work with in, term, in terms of the coaching side of things? Have you balanced that out or has it been the main part of obviously what you're doing now is the, is the mentorship program? Yeah. So, I mean, our business is definitely divided into to several different streams, you know, and it, it, it originally started with just myself and really working solely one-on-one with both clients and uh, from a training perspective and also from a, a mentorship or, or business perspective. And as I kind of got loaded up and, and overloaded to that extent, 
I, I brought Matt on, you know, to essentially help me out with the coaching portion of it. And then we also scaled into the group portion of it from a mentorship perspective, because we had quite a bit of demand, um, and, which was super exciting, but we also needed something that was kind of a lower barrier from a financial perspective yeah. for, for a lot of the people that we were working with. So it, it ended up kind of killing two birds with one stone where we were able to bring in, you know, almost 60, 70 people into that first group. Uh, and, and it ended up being a, a very large revenue stream for us yeah. and something that we instantly kind of had to start prioritizing as well. Um, now we just kind of cycle everything in over quarter over quarter. So it yeah. feels like we're always launching something, which is not Matt and I's favorite part uh, of the business. And <laughs> yeah. we, we have, we kind of outsource that to, to somebody else to kind of help us with the marketing aspect of things. Uh, but it always feels like we're just kind of beginning something and ending something else. And whether that's the, the coaching aspect of things or the education and development aspect of things, it, it keeps us, it keeps us busy, but it also kind of allows us to not have uh, conflicting, you know, revenue streams where we have, we're yeah. forcing people to make choices between one or the other. So at any given time, you know, we've got a group mentorship with anywhere between, you know, 50 and 150 people in it, depending on what time of year it is. We've got, we both train anywhere between 15 to 25 remote clients individually at any given time. We have group training train alongs where we have almost 300 people total between our two programs from that perspective. And then we also both have individual mentees in addition to that. So that allows us to kind of juggle and focus on things and prioritize things based on kind of where the other things are. If we have a small group, we try to pick up more individual people. If we have a large group, we don't have to try so hard and market those things quite so much. So we kind of let the market uh, and the business itself demand what we're driving at any given point from that perspective. Yeah. yeah and that's one of the things that we try to do as well is uh, depending on the size of the group, we will kind of impose caps on our other businesses where it's like, okay, we have a large group this quarter. We're going to cap remote clients at like 10 or 15 people total. So yeah. we're just going to maintain the current book of business that we have, because if we have 150 people in a group or hundred people in a group, and we have 30 to 40 remote clients each, we're not going to be able to provide those same remote clients to the same level of service that we'd be able to provide if we had a group of 30 mm -hmm. uh, people in a group mentorship where yeah. we can just spend much more time on each individual person. Yeah. I, I was just about to say that because sometimes, especially with the, uh, um, uh, especially over the last year, a lot of people going onto you know online coaching now. The the theory behind is oh well, I can coach the entire world, I can coach everybody. Whereas actually, um, you know, you still have to take into account the time um, yeah. that you that you go, that, that you're going to put into there. So um, yeah, that's uh, that, 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 that's cool, and um, yeah, plenty of things to to keep you both uh, keep you both busy. Absolutely. Um, so I did a little bit of a, a little bit of an introduction at the start, but for um, people listening who might not know your backgrounds, how you both uh, ended up working together, um, and your backgrounds in coaching, do you both want to just give a little bit of a, of a background to yourselves? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll lead that off, and you know we always joke about this where the the intro gets shorter the more podcasts that you know we're we're on where. Basically, it's now like I, I'm just an old guy who works out on the internet, uh, you know, but the reality of it is, you know, we've both been in the industry for a long time. I've been in the industry for just over 15 years total uh, as, a, as a coach, as a manager, as a multi-level manager within a larger organization, as a regional director of, of education and training over the entire East Coast, as a national director of training and education for another company based out of New York when I was there. And about three years ago, I kind of got, uh, 
I don't know, uh, just disenfranchised with the whole like kind of globo gym and organizational world, you know, from that perspective and, and the limitations that it put on me from an education perspective, from a teaching perspective, from how I was allowed to kind of create programs and on, at a micro macro scale for that organization. And, and also just my, my general quality of life. I'm, you know, a husband of 11 years and a father of two, and I just wasn't fulfilling my responsibilities up to the levels that I wanted to from those perspectives. And that was something that was really kind of uh, creating just internal conflict more so than even external conflict with me. And, you know, I, I took that opportunity to kind of break out of the East coast and move back to the Midwest. So we're, I'm now located in St. Louis where the majority of my family and my, my wife's families live. And, kind of had to figure out what to do. My original intent was to open a facility out here. And from a real estate perspective, I just couldn't find a good deal. I couldn't yeah. just, I couldn't get it done to, to the, the level that I wanted to do it and just kind of started, you know, training people remotely. And then, you know, my, my experience professionally in leadership and development had gave me a lot of contacts with coaches where I kind of started the mentorship program as well, where I would, I would kind of just kind of help coaches fill in gaps in their business. And I have, you know, I had some people that all we talked about was biomechanics and exercise selection and programming. And I had some clients where all we talked about was like business development and business planning and ways that they can market themselves to new clients and, and kind of start that area of their, of their business. And uh, so it was really kind of the full gamut and uh, about, you know, I don't know, I guess almost two years ago. So a year into the business um, I'd grown enough that I needed help. You know, I needed to be able to scale uh, because I was, you know, kind of back into the, well, I'm working 50 to 60 hours a week again. It just happens to be all on Zoom rather than in person. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I'm kind of falling into the same trap of uh, not kind of maintaining that lifestyle, you know, balance, if you want to call it that, that I wanted to. So at, at that point, I, I brought in Matt and he's been helping me with, you know, he started out helping me with a few things and then. Uh, I realized that he's, you know, despite what I say about him, a, a pretty intelligent <laughs> guy and, and, and pretty helpful and ended up, you know, helping me out with a lot of stuff. And now we, we really do have the opportunity to split uh, workload quite a bit because we also have very different strengths, which, which yeah. allows us to work well together from that respect too. Oh, cool. yeah, so my, my name is Matt. Um, I started in the fitness field in 2012. So I'm pretty, I'm rapidly approaching 10 years, which is cool. Um, it'll be a decent milestone for me. Uh, I was a, an in-person trainer at a large global gym as well. Uh, before that I did do, I was, a, I did some kickboxing and some professional kickboxing matches and some mixed martial arts, um, and some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I was usually coaching people through Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff and coaching and doing strength and conditioning for the other fighters on the team at the time as well. And, like I got, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be super fun. Like I'm going to go into like this, this big box gym. I'm going to train all these athletes. And I was like, oh wait, hold on a second. Those aren't the people that can afford to pay the bills of the gym that I'm at. So like I was, I was training like general population clients and uh, I worked there for, I worked at that one, that gym from 2012, 2013 to 2000, um, 2016. And then I got a management position in the same company and was moved down to Texas to help run and uh, work with the club down here where I live now, um, decided after about a year that management wasn't for me. I just didn't like having the, the, especially middle management was not for me. I didn't like having the, 
the like having all of the the uh, the things that I couldn't control still be my fault anyway, um, <laughs> which was one of my favorite parts of of working in management in general. Um, so decided to step back and become a trainer again. And around that time, I'd gotten really really bored with my own continuing education. So I was looking for a mentorship, and I found a couple people who were like either way too expensive or the time commitment was way too high and eventually stumbled on Kyle around the time that he just started compound performance and um, hired him to, to mentor me. Uh, I was prepping for a powerlifting uh, meet at the time. And I told him, I was like, yeah, cool. After my meet, I want to hire you. And he goes, yeah, all right, bro. Cool. See you never. (laughs) Um, And I actually did end up hiring him to mentor me afterwards. So it was a bit different from what he'd expected and uh mentored him well he mentored me for the entire time uh for three months and then after that i think he had reached a point where there was nobody else who was willing to help him and i was dumb enough to be like yeah let's do it um (laughs) so then from there we started working through the group mentorship together i started taking over some of the remote coaching and training uh now i run my own mentorship program and we do the train alongs and all sorts of other stuff and it's it's been it's been a fun journey it's been a fun time ever since then yeah oh cool Do you, do you find that obviously, you know, you, you both said there about, you know, different strengths and weaknesses that you kind of can um, bounce off each other from different experiences and complement each other quite, quite well. Cause I know there's, you know, a couple of coaches that I've, I've worked with in, in the past that, you know, you can think, Oh yeah, actually I didn't think about it from that perspective or anything like that. Have you, have you found that? Oh, We're actually 100%. really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'd say, you know, we, you know, a lot of our difference more stem even just from like personality styles, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm very introverted. He's very extroverted. He kind of, you know, gets me out there talking to people and not, not, not being a hermit in my house. And and I kind of help him turn the brakes on every now and then, but even from a training perspective, we just have very different uh, athletic and educational backgrounds. And, and I think that has helped us, you know, influence one another. And it also just allows us to be super objective, you know, and kind of, you know, question our own beliefs when it comes to a lot of these things, because, you know, we, we know that, you know, from, from a model perspective, we talk about this a lot, but you know, everything's contextual and there's, there's some models and some training strategies that work really well in some arenas and athletic environments, but don't work at all in other ones, or they're very inefficient in other ones. And, and that allows us to say, you know, like, rather than saying like, Hey, this one thing is, you know, we're going to use this across the board for all of our clients. You know, we can, we can look at and say like, you know, I can get an inquiry from a training perspective and say, you know, Hey, based on what this guy wants to do, or this girl wants to do, this is a much better fit for Matt than it is for me from a training perspective. And, And that allows us to, to really also just provide a better service to the people that we work with. I think where, you know, it's like, we do, we are able to kind of match those styles with those clients goals. And even sometimes personality types to just create a much better relationship for the people that we work with and a much higher level of service. And it ends up, everybody ends up being happier because of it. I think both the client and the coach and, and I think that allows us to also, you know, like I'll, I'll say stuff and, you know, Matt will just look at me and be like, that's dumb. Like that just doesn't make sense based on these things that I know. And I can say, Oh, cool. Like, let's, let's talk about this and, you know, and actually start breaking it down and, and either come to a compromise where it's maybe not completely dumb, but it's dumb in that arena. Right. Or, or vice versa. Uh, and, and I think that allows us to, you know, kind of have a safe environment. That's not the internet where we can bounce ideas off one another and really try to actually come up with the best solution rather than just like the solution that we want 
based on the people that we're working with. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I think one of the cool things that we do too, is we actually share a couple of clients too. Mm-hmm. And with the clients that we share, we talk about this all the time where like Kyle will talk about something that he's doing based off of the context of that. And I'll talk about something that I'm doing based off of a different one. And we'll disagree on, I like he'll disagree on something that I'm doing or like I'll disagree on something that he's doing. And we're able to talk through it and figure out why we're both doing it for each other and how we can then apply it to other clients. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the good things that we've, we've got, and one of our, like if we had superpowers, our superpower would definitely be objectivity because neither of us are emotionally invested or attached to any of the stuff that we've learned before. We understand and we try to, we try really hard to make sure that we're consistently understanding and applying the right thing to the right context for that person that's in front of us, as opposed yeah. to just emotionally investing and trying to validate what we do. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's a good way of looking at it because, you know, I think sometimes you can get, or coaches can sometimes get a little bit too precious about certain things where, you know, you're uh, being able to change and adapt. And if there's a better way of doing it, it's only going to benefit the client. And as well, you know, mentioning there about, um, uh, I always think with, um, when it comes to a client picking a coach, they sometimes gravitate towards certain types of coaches. So to be able to have um, a little bit of a mixture, like you say, mm. it's only gonna it's only gonna benefit um, uh, the the client. Which you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are you know gonna be competing or or, or you know trying to achieve what they want to want to achieve. Um, so going over to um, topics that I sent over setting up setting up this podcast, especially you know uh, with you with you both mentioning the different sides of um, the coin that you might be um, uh, coming from, um, the thing that I or the topic that I wanted to chat about was um, biomechanics and you know from following both of your contents that you the, the uh, content that you put out there, um, what sort of uh, your uh, why do you think it's important to know and understand? biomechanics from a um a coach um delivering a program but also from a, a, a as you as coaches mentoring other coaches where sometimes coaches can go wrong in actually understanding mechan- understanding biomechanics and maybe not applying um applying that very well if that kind of makes sense Oof, this is going to be, how much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go down a few different, a few different <laughs> yeah uh, I mean, I, I think that the caveat that we always talk with, with the people in our groups about is, you know, there, there are, there are no, like, we're talking about biomechanics. We're talking about, you know, essentially how we, how we move and adapt under stress, like, you know, whether that's gravity or whether that's an external load, uh, like how we manage those relationships are essentially what we're talking about. And, and what we always try to, you know, talk about with our people is there's no, there's no good or bad, right? There's just inefficient and efficient is typically what we're talking about from a movement strategy perspective. But we also never want to discount uh, an individual's ability to self-organize, you know, under stress, right? And actually, you know, based on morphology or based on prior training or based or, or prior athletic environments. Or exercise selection. Or exercise selection, right? Like we don't want to discount a, a, an individual's ability to perform really well in something that we might not perceive initially as being efficient. And and I think that's what, you know, I think a lot of the times coaches kind of get stuck in their head that like there's a way to squat or a way to deadlift or a way to run, right. Or jump or whatever, whether it's a counter movement or or an elastic thing, you know, and what we kind of look at is, well, the person in front of us does really well with this strategy. And it might not be what we're looking at from like a textbook perspective. Right. But is, is there a bigger return on the time and training investment of, 
just helping them leverage the strategy they're already good at or trying to change the strategy wholesale just because we think it's right or what they're doing may have a higher long-term risk equivalent or something of that nature. And, and I think that's like the decision we end up having to make a lot of the time. And for really high performers, I think, you know, whether it's me working with a triathlete on their gate or Matt working with like a very high level power lifter on the strategies that they're using. I think a lot of what we typically do, especially for those folks is like, we don't change the things they're already good at we try to add in alternative strategies oftentimes within other parts of their programming, right? Whether that's their accessory lifting or their physical preparation, we just, we try to give them a little bit more variability, especially if they're a athlete who's really mired in specificity from a movement perspective. And, and I think that's where it comes down to kind of the old, the old saying, it's like, like, we're not changing something that's not broken just because it doesn't necessarily fit our narrative or our paradigm of like, quote unquote, optimal movement or optimal biomechanics. Now I will caveat that and say that we will look at adjusting things if there is a consistent history of uh, like a lack of success in a specific position, Mm -hmm. right? Or an injury history. Or an injury history or things like that. Um, and this is also not to say that we don't think that having, because this is a way that it always gets taken. Uh, we, this is not to also say that we do not think that good technique is a very important thing for people to have. Because again, if we're looking at this in terms of biomechanical efficiency and movement efficiency, if we're looking at being super strong or being super fast, the most efficient way that you can move is going to be the be- the, the best one, right? Yeah. Because we're going to be expending the least energy and expending the least amount of effort to complete the same task. Whereas somebody who's significantly more inefficient in that task would have to expend a lot more energy and effort to complete the same movement. Yeah. So there are definitely going to be times that we will change things and that we we will work on adjusting things, but a lot of what we can work on adjusting is going to come down to not necessarily prescribing a new fancy drill. It's just going to be changing the the setup or execution of the exercise more so than anything else. So yeah. like, and this is a, this is something that's different because uh, particularly with the population or the demographic bias that Kyle, Kyle and I both have, where he's dealing with more people who are looking at like athletic development and running speed and, and just general capacity is a metric that they're looking to change. And if they're hitting something that's very efficient for them in terms of a capacity building standpoint or an athletic development standpoint, or that's not the most efficient, and it's still something that you can continue to progress with, this is where like we may, we may not necessarily touch it. But with me, when I'm dealing with people who are trying to be as strong as humanly possible, this is where I'm going to be adjusting certain things based off of um, based off of what I see with them to try and adjust and make them a little bit more efficient. So, for example, like if I see somebody's like if I have a power lifter whose knees are continuously caving in in a squat, it's like, OK, cool. Instead of prescribing a weird drill for you, I'm probably just going to have you move your stance in slightly so that we can see if this becomes a bit more of an efficient movement for you. Whereas with Kyle's population with more like athletic development, if he sees somebody who's developing a tremendously large anterior pelvic tilt while they're going to sprint, I mean, that just might be something that's like, all right, cool. We don't have to worry about that. We're going to work on doing this instead in all of the remainder of your exercises. Yeah. Do you think from the the couple of things that you that you touched on there, when we're talking about the um, coaching small tweaks or, or, or variations, um, especially if um, when you said about if they're already strong in a certain lift, do you think they're, uh, from a coach's point of view, if they're trying to make small tweaks, if they don't have a full understanding of how to um, work on their weaknesses, they say they'll, they'll give a coaching cue or give an exercise because they don't have a full understanding of how to actually 
improve that athlete or, or, or that lifter. Does that, that kind of make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what we're, we look at and I don't want to speak for other coaches, you know, I think that's definitely, that becomes problematic really quickly, but, yeah. but what we see the most probably is coaches changing things that don't really matter in the grand scheme. And yeah. sometimes even, even things that end up like being detrimental based on that person's training history. And like, we've seen it across the board and like powerlifting where, uh, changing, you know, a powerlifter squat into something that maybe is like less posterior dominant into more of something that's, you know, a little more anterior dominant, a little more balanced, you know, kind of that squatty squat versus hingy squat thing. Particularly if that client's morphology does uh, dictates that that would not be the strongest. Structure. Yeah. Like we, like we see like quad tears all the time, right? Because yeah. now we're overloading tissues that maybe have been o- underloaded in the past, right? And and again, that might even be something that's not so much a biomechanical issue. It might even just be a tissue tolerance issue that should have just been graded out better over the course of a training program rather than changed, you know, in meat prep or, or something of that nature. And, you know, when I look at it from an athletic perspective, you know, a lot of what I see is, you know, again, like we see inefficiencies and we see efficiencies, but the, the issue is that there, there's not always one absolute strategy that's efficient for every single person. And, and that's where like Matt's talking about, like from a morphological perspective, I'm six, five, my, my squat's not going to look like somebody who's five, eight, right. It's just not, you know, like I've got femurs that have to go somewhere. Right. So I'm not going to be as vertical from a tish, uh, a torso perspective unless I'm front loaded. Right. So maybe that's just a picking a better exercise selection for me based on my height and morphology. Right. When we look at like running and gait and things of that nature, it's a, it's a very similar thing where I'm going to have probably more backside mechanics and front side mechanics just because of the length of my leg and my ability to get through a swing phase. And that might encourage a little different pelvic position and a little bit different rib cage position and space based on those things. And based on the type of running I'm doing, whether it's sprinting or something that's more of a middle distance or, or long distance tempo. And all of these variables, right. Have to be taken into account when we start looking at what an athlete's doing and how they're doing it and what the task demands of that thing are based on them, you know, and I think that's whether we're talking about powerlifting, that's something that Matt looks at super closely with his, with his strength athletes, where, uh, I look at it the same way with, you know, I've got rugby players and soccer players and triathletes and, and runners and whatever, they all have different task demands and they all have different morphologies. They all have different training histories. And we have to take all of those things into account when we're writing out what those programs actually are. Yeah. Yeah, with the because especially touching on that when we're saying about you know athletes and and lifters, they're going to be um, everyone's going to going to be different. How does that or how do you guys work in terms of um, the battery of assessments that you might use or what you're looking at when a, when when a client's first coming in? Because I know other people uh, and there's coaches, there's, there's there's tests out there, or is it a case of you know, the more that you're working with a, um, a, an athlete or a, or a lifter, you're seeing them train more and you can pick up things and you sort of uh, assessing as you assessing as you're going. So honestly, for me, when I'm looking at assessments, I think the less that you're assessing, the better off you're going to be from a couple for a couple different reasons. Right. So what I'm looking at doing assessments for for any of the lifters that I come in that, that come in and train with me, all I'm looking at is their competition specific lifts. That's it. I just want to see how they perform the task at hand because that's going to give me more of an insight into what they're actually doing and where their potential limitations are than anything else that I'm going to see from them. Um, 
if I want to start looking at deeper stuff, like if I have some like red flags that appear in like an injury history or something like that, then I'm going to look deeper into some specific stuff that I'm going to see and like look at some specific mobile, like mobility issues and specific uh, assessments that we would use, but I'm never, ever, ever using those. Or like I've, this is a wrap, a large change that I've made in the last like probably 18 months where I'm no longer using those as a first battery of assessments. I'm using those as a secondary or a tertiary assessment based off of what I see in the competition specific movements. And I think the reason, the, one of the biggest reasons that I've changed and I've worked through this um, is if I'm looking at, if I'm, if I'm looking at cleaning up a lifter's movement or making them more efficient or just making them better, I need to look at what they're actually doing and how they're actually performing the movement. And if I'm looking at a bunch of passive screens and passive assessments, those are cool and those give me an idea of what they're going to look like, but I'm going to get most of that same information from just watching them squat, bench, and deadlift, yeah. which is, I think is, it, it's, a, it's a much more usable test for me to, to see what they're going to be doing. And it's also one of the things that I can see, okay, cool. Does this person actually have this issue or do I just need to change their stance a little bit? Or do I just need to change their grip a little bit? Or do I need to change their torso position? Or do they just need to get generally stronger to fix the problems that they have? Okay. Um, the second reason that I've also kind of shied away from a lot of these passive assessments is in the discussion, because the, the, most of the clients that I deal with, or, and that both of us actually deal with are coaches and educated people in general. So we don't, I don't really get many people. I, I, I do have a bunch, actually, a bunch of people who are just like, give me your program. I just want to crush it. Don't tell me why we're doing any of this stuff. I trust you. Just let's go for it. And those yeah. are great. But the people that I have who ask me tremendous amounts of questions about all this stuff, I find that those answers, no matter how I phrase them, start to create a bit of a fragility complex or, bit of, or start sowing the seed of doubt in that particular person. So for example, if I'm talking about somebody who has like a bit of an internal rotation deficiency in their shoulder, that will become the biggest thing that they'll be starting to work on and try to fix during all of their movement. It's just like, well, listen, yeah. We've now, like you went from benching like 140 kilos to benching 80 kilos. So you dropped 60 kilos off your bench, but now you got perfect shoulder IR. Like one of like your sport is trying to push that number up. It's not yeah. trying to bring that number down to move better. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we're still respecting the, the, the task at hand. And the most important thing, which is yeah. for these people, the competition specific movements. So for me, moving out of these passive assessments has been a big thing for me in terms of uh, like communication with my, with my lifters and my athletes, because I'm not sitting there talking about, well, if we got another extra two degrees of shoulder IR, you'd be much better. And then they start blaming their shoulder IR on all of their problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where like, because Matt and I's populations are so different, like our assessment process is very different, right? So mm -hmm. like Matt deals with extreme specificity where the majority of his clients have three tasks, right? Squat, bench, and dead. And, and those are the three things that every single part of their programming is going to revolve around making better. If I'm working with a triathlete or a rugby player, I'm actually probably trying to drive more variability right within my programming for that person, because variability is going to allow them to move more dynamically within their sport, right? If, if I'm talking about a field sport athlete, that's going to be important where we have not only like, you know, like triplanar movement, but we also have like deceleration and change of direction issues that we have to start trying to work with plus skill development. And so my, my assessment process, the first is, is kind of, uh, 
almost triphasic in a way where I've got three main categories that I look at as far as a primary, secondary, tertiary categories. And my primary categories for everybody is like gait and respiration, because most of my athletes are capacity-based athletes where Matt's athletes capacity doesn't matter at all. They're actually trying to compress everything as much as possible and be strong. Whereas my people have to be able to breathe while they do things. So I do have to look at respiratory strategy a little bit from that perspective. And I look at those things. So I'm looking at like the structure. I'm looking at how they move from a gate perspective. And then from there, I go into active assessments where I've got a few different things as far as just looking at like major patterns. I look at a body weight squat. I look at a standing toe touch. I look at an Apley's test to look at shoulder internal and external rotation. I look at overhead flexion and I have them do a push up, right? And that lets me know how essentially how they move their appendicular skeleton on their axial skeleton, right? So what's happening at the humerus and the, and the scaps, what's happening at the pelvis and the femurs. And based on that, if I see some things that don't necessarily match up with the gait and the, and the assumptions I'm making from there or the respiration strategies and what I'm looking at there, then I will do potentially passive assessments to see if there is a mechanical deficiency or mechanical obstruction in somebody's humoral IR or femoral IR or, or whatever. And and as Matt said, you know, again, neither one of us walks around with a goyometer, right? Like you cannot convince me that five degrees of rotation of a femur matters in somebody's yeah. performance that much, right? And, and also that it's static, right? Because like what we see and what I probably anyone who's ever done table tests on somebody in a closed setting sees is I can lay you down on a table and look at your femoral IR and ER have you stand back up, do 10 body weight squats, lay you back down on the table. And it's different, right? You know, so again, it's like, this is what we kind of look at is those passive tests might give us an idea, like a, you know, again, a 10,000 foot view of like what a client looks like. But at the end of the day, our clients have to perform. And yeah. with Matt watching them do the big three matters way more than what you see on the table. And with me, it's kind of the same thing. Watching you do active things, running, breathing, doing those things is going to be much more representative of your actual sport than laying you down on a table. So we use that, like I use that as the, the last category and it's only in an if then basis where for a lot of my clients, I don't use passive testing at all anymore. Whereas two years ago, that might've been my primary assessment. So that's something I've definitely changed my mind on and my approach yeah. on based on my experience with, with the clients yeah. that we work with. Yeah, I have they, never they, once seen a very strong deadlifter with good hip extension. It's always terrible. <laughs> it's always absolutely awful. So like that was one of those things that kind of showed me that, okay, it's probably not as important as I think it actually is. Yeah. You, you both mentioned there, obviously, um, you know, with experience and, and time, you've sort of changed your assessment side of things. Obviously, you've still got that base understanding of, of mechanics and you want them to move efficiently. Do you think from the from the mentorship side of things that, you know, especially with, I know for myself, you come out of, you know, university and it's like, oh, I've got to do all these and I've, done, I've got all this test, whereas actually, you know, sometimes it's, okay, so the end result is the performance. They're either going to go out and play the rugby on the Saturday, they've got a competition, do you think that just develops with, with time and, you know, coaches may potentially have to go through that phase of, you know, trying to do all these tests and realizing, because I know I, I've done it, you kind of realize yep. that as you, as you start progressing, you start simplifying things a lot more and looking at what the, what, what the main things are. 
Yeah, Absolutely. You, I think that's an, an essential part in any kind of person's development yeah. over time is just going through and getting really, really deep into the weeds to see where you've been, to see what you're, what you're looking at. Um, and then you eventually will come to the understanding on your, on your own that it probably doesn't matter as much as you think it is. And I think that's how people learn in general, right? It's yeah. like, we learn concepts through like full immersion. immersion. Like that's yeah. the best way to learn anything, right? Is to, to hear it, to see it, to do it. And, and to really, really, again, kind of dig into the weeds. So you do know all the details and then you kind of get in a live setting and you're like, Oh, like, okay. Like, I might actually need like 25% of all this information I learned. And that's yeah. cool because I know this stuff really well. And, and what we always tell people, cause we help, you know, part of our, our, our mentorship process is helping coaches create their training models. Right. And the training models aren't built off of their education. They're built off the clients that they're yeah. working with and the demographic that they're working with. And that's where, like if Matt and I had the same assessment for these two entirely different populations, we'd be doing one of them, probably both of them, a huge disservice yeah. in how we were actually trying to look at their look at their movement based on their performance. So we should have completely different assessments, right? If you're working with collegiate athletes in a university setting, your assessment is going to look very different than a trainer at a big box gym who's dealing with like gin pop people, right? And for those people walking up the steps without knee pain is the performance. Yeah. Right. And th that, that might be the testing and that might be part of the training based on specificity. Right. You know, so what we start looking at is before you can develop a training model and an assessment system, you absolutely have to know who you're training yeah, first. Yeah. And it sounds super obvious, but the way the education system is set up in this industry they kind of skip that part, right? Like you go, you go do an FMS, you go do an FRA, you go do a PRI or a DNS or whatever. All of these systems are teaching different assessment models, but they're not talking at all about the demographic of people that you're actually working with and what's going to be appropriate to those people based on their task demands and yep. their training environments. And if you ask them at the seminar, what am I like, who am I using this for? They just look at you like you have six heads and like, um, everybody, obviously everyone, <laughs> the whole everybody. gamut of people that you're going to see. Why wouldn't LeBron James be assessed the same way as my grandmother? Yeah. What, are you stupid? What are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> yeah. With, with that in, in Mac, cause especially, you know, you're talking about um, systems and, and models that, that, that you're using, how does that, you know, influence the, the programming side of things and the, the, um, the, uh, the programming and exercise selection um, side of things um, because, you know, there is sometimes it is a case of, right, so you're going to come train with me, you're going to fit within my my system, my system of pro, uh, of programming. How does that sort of, you know, influence how, how you guys work as well? I just want to apologize real quick because it's not a real podcast until my dog screams on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard that. Um, yeah, I think for, for that, you know, when I look at systems and models, you know, what I always encourage coaches to do is, you know, learn as much as you can because they're all tools. And, and as you're learning these models, I think it's important to also be looking at what's similar between all the models, right? Because at the end of the day, we're, we're applying all of these things to a human body. Yeah. That, that moves in, in very specific ways, right? Like we can all agree what a femur does on a pelvis. It flexes, it extends, it adducts, it adducts, it rotates, right? There's not, there's nothing else that's really going to be doing. We kind of know what gait's going to look like. 
we know, you know, on a squat, we're going to have flexion and extension patterns that happen on the eccentric and concentric portions of that. They might look a little bit different from person to person to person. That's okay. That's individual variance. But we also know that like from a, a global patterning perspective, certain joints are going to move certain ways, right? So when I look at all these systems and you start looking at the, the interventions or the corrective exercise or the exercise selection that they're promoting, if you're just looking at kind of the shapes that people are creating while they're doing these exercises, you see all these similarities across the board because you can't do much else, right? Yeah. Like shoulder extensions gotta be shoulder extension. Like at the end of the day, there's not a lot of different things that we can do with it. So when I start seeing differences in these systems, that's where I kind of have to raise an eye and be very objective and very critical and saying like, Hey, did you just like discover the, the, the panacea of fitness or is this probably not worth doing because nobody else is doing it. Right. And, yeah. and if you're, if you're in the echo chamber of the system, it's the best thing in the world. If you're outside of that looking in, you're like, Oh, you're just worrying about minutia that doesn't really matter that much. Right. So we, we try to always look at similarities and, and most of training, regardless of goal, is, you know, we, we assess the task demands of whatever that person's goal is. Then we assess that person's abilities relative to the task demands. And the training is just trying to bring those things closer together, right? So it's just giving people what they don't have. If Matt's working with somebody who wants to be incredibly strong and they're just not strong enough, it's a lot of strength training, right? If, if, it's, if it's like there is a biomechanical issue and an injury history, okay, it's going to be some alternative patterning, you know, based on the things that they might be overusing or overtraining during their still training. loaded, still loaded, <laughs> still, still loaded. loaded because their sport is loaded. It's the same thing with me. If I've got somebody who is a sprinter and is, does have like an extensive anterior pelvic tilt, which is limiting their ability to get hip flexion on their front side mechanics. And I do need to work on getting them a little more neutral, hip, you know, pelvic position. So they get better hip flexion and better hip extension and more glute on the backside. Well, then I'm going to be using a lot of exercise selections. That's just encouraging a neutral pelvis with constraints and with loading schemes, right? Like instead of a barbell back squat, which might encourage a little bit more anterior pelvic tilt and posterior compression, I can front squat that person still loaded right? Rather than laying them on the ground and having them, you know, roll around and not do anything useful. In, in my opinion, I can just pick a better exercise for that person to drive the movement that I want and the adaptation that I want from that perspective. Yeah, definitely. Uh, sorry about what you're going to, oh, I was going to, I was going to say, just kind of cal- like piggybacking on that one, like just looking at the way that we're, we're applying these, these systems and a lot of the things that are being used. One of the biggest things that I consistently see with, and Kyle kind of brought it up and alluded to it a little bit at the end there um, by talking about having people rolling around on the ground and not actually doing anything. Um, one of the biggest things that I consistently see that I see as a similarity between all of these systems is a, is a, a lack of emphasis on actually training and more of an emphasis on doing their system first. Right. Where it's like, if you can't do any of these things that we make you do that are totally new and you've never seen or done them before, you shouldn't even be able to touch the gym floor. So like, I see things like that. And like, that's one of the commonalities that I see, which in my opinion, as, as strength coaches, it becomes a bit more disingenuous where we're not looking at the, the client's goal first. We're looking at validity, like validation of the system. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've seen like people who squat 700 plus pounds or like 350 plus kilos 
325 to 300 like to 400 kilos sitting there doing like 20 kilo goblet squats and it's like what do you think this is actually going to do for that yeah. person when you this get person, under a barbell like, yeah this yeah. person squats 800 pounds what do you think this 44 pound squat is going to do <laughs> yeah. like it's gonna it's not going to do anything at all so yeah. but it's it feels difficult and it feels challenging but it doesn't place an, any emphasis on effort of or like stimulation. It places all of it on sensation and trying to get them to like fit within the boxes and the confines of these systems. One, and, and that's even another point where you're not helping anybody by decreasing the stimulus, especially if you're decreasing the stimulus to zero. Like everything feels good with no stimulus, right? So when we look at a lot of these, you know, corrective exercise systems, most of them are floor based, right? So we're not even dealing with gravity anymore. So as you being able to do like, uh, you know, having, you know, different mobility or, or a different respiration pattern or whatever, while laying on your back, and then assuming that that's going to translate over to being loaded when you're upright. It's a bold assumption. Completely yeah. disrespects like dynamic systems and stimulus, you know, accommodation, right? Because we know that as soon as a stimulate a stimulus is applied that's greater than your ability, you are going to default and self-organize into the patterns that you're already familiar with as a human being. And you're going to go back right back into whatever pattern that we were trying to quote unquote, correct you out of as soon as we're loaded. So when we deal with, you know, a, a high level athlete or Matt deals with the power lifter, you know, that goblet squat, that's 44, you know, 44 pounds or 20 kilos, like that probably needs to be like a hack squat that is heavy or an SSB squat or a, or a front squat, hat field squat or something, yeah, like hat that. field yeah. squat, something that we can load that person up and load that different patterning up to a level of stimulus that at least is in the ballpark of what their barbell back squat might be, or we're not going to get any significant change at all. I think that's a that's a good way of looking at it. And I think for sometimes for a, for a, a lot of coaches, or sometimes sometimes what you see is, um, you know, forgetting that because especially you know with the first question asked about the biomechanics side of things, and we talk about movement, mm-hmm. but they still need to be efficient for their sport, for their mm-hmm. for their competition at the end, and there still needs to be you know coming in like uh, speaking to um, a guy came in. And he had uh, an issue with his if, issue with his shoulder, and he spent all of his exercises in his program were focused towards around his shoulder, but everything else then got neglected. And then actually, when he got back training, his squat suffered. Every, everything everything else was was a little bit more of an issue. And you know, a couple of things there, like when we've spoken about the um, assessment side of things, and you know, if they're coming in and we need to um, change. Uh, they're they're training around right well we still need to push them towards actually getting a result assessments don't have to be you know assess everything but Mm -hmm. really you only need you know you only need a couple of a couple of things from there um which i think sometimes especially because so we have a like an internship program at the at the gym that i work at and sometimes when you're telling younger coaches who have come from like university or something like that sometimes it's a little bit like what what do you, yeah. what do you mean we should, we should be doing that? But, you know, right. that comes from, you know, it's a little bit like I use the analogy of uh, you do driving lessons and then when you actually start driving, that's when you start start to learn how to how to drive, um, which I think sometimes is you know you need to do these different things and and you know speaking to coaches such as yourselves about all oh, right actually so you know over time that you're still you two are still developing and changing and changing mm-hmm. how how you're working and, and adapting, and that goes sorry go on. 
Oh, oh, I was just something that we say a lot to our coaches is because we deal with, we work with a lot of new coaches and, and coaches that are just coming out of school and, and they kind of come to us with a lot of these same questions where they're like, well, what about this? And they're kind of naming off all these obscure things. And, and what, what I'll typically tell them is, you know, like just because something is correct does not mean it's important. Yeah. And I think that's what we always have to look at is it's like, is there utility in this? Does this does assessing this thing and changing the program actually bring about a positive return or is it just noise in the background of your training that takes up valuable time that you could be developing other qualities for that, for that. It's like you talked about with that guy who's got the, the shoulder issue, who's hundred percent of his program was built towards the, sh- the, the, yeah. the shoulder, but his squat and deadlift went to shit. It's like, well, that was a fail of a program. Yeah. That's a crappy program. That's a crappy program. Like if it's not able to still address some of the stuff that he's looking at doing while still building up the other things that he's able to do, that's not, that's not good. Yeah. There's, um, there's actually, uh, so there's a group of coaches that I, that I work with and one of the coaches runs there, um, like the athletic, athletic performance side um, of coaching in, in the gym. And we were talking about, you know, right, these, this is what we need to put into, into the program. And um, uh, a couple of, uh, a couple of people did have, you know, niggly shoulders, but one person did a goblet split squat. One person had a safety bar split squat. One did. There's other ways that you can still, right. like when you've been saying about, yep. you know, um, everybody's different, right? Well, actually, you know, if we don't need to put a barbell on the back, we've got safety bars. That's when, mm. you know, we're talking about exercise selection. You can have a little bit more to, to play to mm. play around with rather than, hmm. So I just need to use a, a barbell. That's the most, that's where we can load them up the most, right? Well, actually for different people, you can still get a training stimulus oh, yeah. from doing something else. We actually talked about this on a podcast yesterday. I think it's fairly relevant now, but imagine if you went to like a, like a, like a football club coach and you went, I'm going to take your elite athletes. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just steadily make them worse over time. <laughs> Um, and then when I give them back to you, they're going to be weaker and slower and not as capable as they were when you had them last. That sound good to you? Cool. All right, let's go. Like, and that's, that's what, what's happening with a lot of like these strength athletes who are getting like super caught up in a lot of this stuff is it's exactly like you said, a lot of other things get worse and suffer for it, but they feel like things are moving in the right direction because they're getting validity from whatever assessment or process that they were looking at doing where they're not actually improving and moving the needle the right way in the right direction at all times. They're using the example of like, well, I'm taking two steps back so I can take two steps forward later. It's like, well, that still gives you a net return of zero. Why don't yeah. you just take one step back on one thing so you can continuously step forward on the other stuff? Yeah, with with that in mind, obviously we've spoken about uh, you know a couple of people with shoulders and and and, and that sort of stuff. But when you are trying to balance, because um, there is a, there is a thought process when you speak with some coaches, balancing the goal that they have their their performance goal, whether it be competing on a pitch or you know on the on the platform but also trying to balance sort of like human function like the you know the ability to be able to you know still uh rotate bend twist and and that sort of stuff how what are your thought processes on on balancing that if at all the first thing that i'm going to look at is training volume yeah. more than anything else right because i, I think that's going to be one of the biggest indicators of of like getting people overly beat up and feeling overly fatigued and injured and all that kind of stuff is if we're doing too much, that's a really easy thing that we can touch to just get rid of, to just drop and decrease to a more minimum effective dose and then slowly scale it up and give, uh, provide a little bit better graded exposure to that client to bring them up to where they want to be, as opposed to just throwing them into a high volume approach immediately. 
Um, so that's, that's pretty much, that's all I would look at doing. And like, I've had a bunch of people who have come to me and be like, well, my shoulder is all messed up. And I look at their previous program and it's like, you're doing 27 sets of bench a week. So yeah, of course yeah. your shoulder's messed it's gonna up. Be, it's it's, it's going to feel gonna terrible. So yeah. we drop it down to like, and they expect me to give them like some fancy drills or things like that. And I just cut their sets down to like 10 to 13 sets and they're like, Oh, everything feels good now. Cool. Thanks. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's a similar aspect with with my view and, and matt's th- this probably definitely is is more attributed to matt because he like all of all of the stuff that he's like his his athletes tasks are all like sagittal bilateral lifting that you know so you see a lot of power lifters that aren't great movers when you just look at them because they're so adapted to their actual sport whereas a lot of my people they are more dynamic and, and again, typically what I'm looking at there is, is still training volume related where if I've got an athlete who's in season, like I have to decrease my volume significantly and probably focus a little bit more on like training intensity and short duration aspects, right? Because they're getting enough volume from running and playing their sport that I don't have to add that into their actual days, right? So I'm looking at decreasing training volume, but for a completely different reason, and it, but it still has to do with feeling banged up and feeling overworked because the, the last thing that I want to do is like, it, like if I'm working with a rugby player, turn them into a better weightlifter in a worse athlete, right? Like yeah, that, yeah. that defeats the entire purpose. So a lot of what I look at with, you know, again, kind of dosing stimulus based on the exercise selection is there are exercises where a global stimulus is going to be super important for me, right? Like I, I do, we do squat and deadlift and do presses and, and whatever bilaterally, but I'm kind of looking at minimum effective dose from a volume perspective there. And I try to keep it pretty high stem. So it still does carry over into power and velocity production, right? So I'm still playing with force curves. And then when I look at things that are going to be more unilateral and like gait inspired, that's where I'm training more positional work. That's where I'm training a little bit more volume that might help them access some different ranges of motions and some different movement orientations during their actual sport. And also just help them feel better when they're walking around and living life, right? So training volume. And then I think also just like, how you're dosing stimulus across different exercise selections and different orientations. It's going to be super important there. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes like the, the answers that you say there are kind of um, easier to change rather than I think sometimes, you know, trying to think about some convoluted exercises to be like, right, this is because there's, there's the whole thing of, right, well, this is functional this is functional training. This is going to be, you know, so you're going to be a functioning human being, right? Well, actually, you know, you've, what you've, what you've both said, said there is in terms of the volume of, of, of training and looking at the product. Sometimes I think that it's the, uh, something crazy or, you know, the, the, the secret formula, if you like, is a, is a magic exercise that is going to, that, that is, that is going to help them. Right. Like, yeah. what do you, what do you think is going to be more uh, important or more effective at improving shoulder extension, doing something like a, like a drill where you're just focusing on shoulder extension and you're doing like kettlebell arm bars and all sorts of stuff like that, or doing a dumbbell row that is just pure shoulder extension. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's probably going to be the dumbbell row. <laughs> yeah, just on a on a on a slight tangent. Just when you when you said something there, when you both mentioned about volume, um, 
do you think that relates to sort of like injury prevention as well then? Or do you think that is just a byproduct of that? Because sometimes when you're talking about volume or getting niggles or, 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 or anything like that, um, or is, you know, because injury, injury, prevention, injury prevention is one of those things, you don't know that you've done injury prevention unless you get an injury. Do you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do. That, I do that would be the number yeah. one thing that I look at is, yeah. you know, not, you know, and again, like two to three years ago, I might've said biomechanics, I might've said something of that nature, but like the, again, the more research that I've read in that area, and, and especially just looking at like tendon health and, and things of that nature, like we're really just looking at probably global stimulus uh, and, and actual like training volume in relation to sport volume yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. And you know, again, it's like, we, we've talked to several like strength and conditioning coaches over time. Like Jake Tura is a guy that I, that you should definitely have on this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think he does a lot of research in this and he's worked with collegiate athletes and, and, but a lot of when we start looking at like, again, just the tissue demands being imposed on some of these structures, like it's really easy to watch a, you know, watch a video of somebody who, you know, tears an Achilles and be like, Oh, well look at the position of the knee and the foot and whatever. But Okay, well, that's also that guy's 77th game in, in an NBA season. It's his, uh, he's in his eighth year in the league. So, you know, multiply that. Now he's played, you know, a thousand games in his career. They just traveled from Phoenix to New Jersey the day before. They're on a three game road trip. And this is now the fourth quarter of a game that he's played 44 minutes in and he's fatigued. Is it the position or is it everything else in combination? Can oh, we and their bus the didn't one? get in until 1130 last night. So yeah. he didn't fall asleep until 1 a.m. <laughs> yeah. like, and, th- and he thinks that Skittles <laughs> yeah. are a meal, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, again, you know, it's, it's looking at this. It's like, I, I think that's where we have to look at everything combined. And we have to, and, and you know, that's why athletic teams do so much like GPS monitoring now, because they, I think they are looking at overall load as a, again, not, not a completely accurate predictor because it is dynamic. It is a multifactorial system, but it's probably the number one variable that a lot of research has shown to be representative of like what injury occurrence looks like for that person or or for an athlete. Yeah. And I I would say for, for my population that I deal with, that is a bit more specificity driven. Volume is one of the key, uh, key factors. um, So much else is controlled. Yeah, so everything else is controlled. controlled by it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting because sometimes you know the the you think at the time when an injury has occurred, okay, so it's that specific thing that has that has happened. Whereas actually, you know, the more you look at things and look at injuries, you know, it's probably a build up of you, you oh, mentioned yeah. there. Everything, everything matters. Everything, everything, else, every, yeah. everything is a, is a build up from there. And um, yeah, it's it, it isn't just necessarily that one thing at that time that, that right. goes there, especially yeah. non traumatic injury. Like it's really like if we're watching like a rugby player just get smashed and you know breaking ribs okay it's that thing <laughs> that's just, exactly like, what it was yeah. like, i know exactly what that is he got crushed right but if we're looking at like non-contact joint injuries like acl injuries and achilles injuries and things of that where like that's almost never acute i yeah. would say those are point. very like, chronic things those are chronic issues at that point yeah. where you saw the the straw that broke the camel's back so to speak but you have to take into account everything else yeah. to, to really to be objective and to have an idea of what that might have been from. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like if it wasn't ex- extremely acute 
issue every time you hyperextend your knee you tear your acl yeah like this. <laughs> or, or like achilles would be popping every day oh yeah like you trip hundreds. on a curb boom gone there it goes <laughs> yeah, like, like you, you watch a professional like basketball game and you'd see like seven or eight a game you know at that yeah. point like nobody would be safe yeah. I think it goes from from the the talks that we've that we've covered there when we've spoken about you know biomechanics efficiency and and, and assessments having a top down view of, of of looking at things and looking looking at the bigger picture rather than you know right okay if we get a couple of you know a couple more degrees you know for for shoulder flexibility or any or anything like that it's um that's not going to big picture. It's not going to, it's not going to do um, uh, much good towards their, their performance uh, or their, or, or on the platform. Um, yeah. So yeah, a little bit of tangent about, in, about injury, uh, about injuries. There, no, for sure. You that's said that and I was, um, but the, um, from all the topics that we've, um, we've, we've covered there, the last question that I like to ask is from everything that we've chatted about for everybody listening, what would be your take home points or words of wisdom? Uh, I mean, I think mine goes back to our discussion about, you know, talking about models where when you look at your training programming, you look at, you know, how you're building out programs for your clients, it has to be client centered, mm-hmm. right? And not like your education centered or like we all have our biases and we all have our preferences, but we also all work for our clients. We're in a service industry, especially as like coaches right and i think that's where it's like everything that we're doing from that perspective not only has to match their goals but also their preferences and i think that's that's a that goes into exercise selection that goes into how you program that also goes into the service that you provide and if you can do those things you will be much more successful in this industry rather than being like super rigid in your beliefs mine is mine is obviously we work together so mine is pretty much the same where it's just going to be continuously audit your own uh assessment your own process and everything that you do for yourself so audit your own information that you're taking um and try not to get too emotionally invested in any particular thing that you've found because whatever it is it's less important than the person sitting in front of you yeah i think that was two two good ways to to finish on because especially from um both coaching and you know having having that experience but also from the mentorship of having speaking to other coaches and seeing sort of both sides of it from in the field coaching and as well from from the coaches that you've worked with so um yeah thanks a lot for uh, for taking the time to to, to jump on on uh, and you know chat about that i think there was some good um conversation in there um but for everyone listening who might have any questions about what we've chatted about today or want to get involved in some coaching or some mentorship or see the content that you guys put out there where can people find you I'll reach out to you. Yeah, the the website is just um, www.compoundperformance.com. So that's super easy to find. And then uh, the the only other way to really get a hold of us probably is through like Instagram. Neither one of us does a ton on other platforms, but my my Instagram is um, Compound Performance with an underscore after it. My Instagram is Matt Domney, M A T T D O M N E Y. Spot on. 100% for everyone listening. Look at the content that, that these guys are putting out there. I know from myself following following them, it's been it's been really really helpful. So, um, Kyle, Matt, thanks a lot for taking the time to to jump on. Thanks a lot to everyone listening, and I will see you all next week. Thanks a lot for having us.